Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Dr. No from 1962 with my wonderful guests, Stephanie Anderson and Andre Fonseca. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. So I have two wonderful guests today. My first guest is Stephanie Anderson and her wonderful partner, Andre Fonseca, who is returning to the podcast. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hey. <laughs> it's so good to see and hear you. Okay, so this time around, uh, we watched the original Bond film, Dr. No, from 1962. Friends, what were your thoughts on this? I was really surprised, you know, after seeing like what the Bond films have become, I was surprised to see that like for the very first Bond film that like all the spy technology was so like basic. It wasn't, you know, like weird gadgets and and funny exploding briefcases, but that it was just like good old fashioned spy work with dusting for fingerprints or using using a hair to see if a door had opened. And I, I thought that was really, really neat. You know, I expected what we see in later Bond films, which is just ridiculousness. When I was watching it, I was very sort of like charmed in a way by like what Stephanie's mentioning, like it was almost quaint, like the spy work in Dr. No. And there were also a lot of things that I forgot about that they, you know, that it was set in Jamaica and that Dr. No was, uh, I guess, Chinese. Um, not that you could tell from by the actor. And um, I forgot that, uh, and I know that we'll probably go into this a little bit, but I forgot that, you know, Jack Lord, Mr. Hawaii Five-O is in it. There were just a lot of rediscoveries that I, I was both pleased with and then a little like sort of this isn't great <laughs> type stuff. Yeah. I really enjoyed the like sort of Bond begins, the the origin story. Like if they were going to remake James Bond, it would be like kind of quaint like this. So one of the reasons I chose this film uh, was because it's going to be released like a, I think the week before the new Bond film comes out. So I'm really excited for the latest Bond film that's going to come out. So I thought, like, first of all, it would be really fun to go back and watch the first one and see how far we've come. But also, the other reason I chose Dr. No is because I have read it. I own the book and I have read it. So that was kind of the other, like, instigator for me of, like, how interesting would it be to watch this Bond film again, having read it. Plus, it's one of my favorite Bonds for the same reasons you guys are saying. It's just, like, it's a, it's a really fun one. I'm going to do a synopsis um, for all the people at home that might not be familiar with Dr. No, which is not the first Bond story. 
the reason that they chose it was because it had the least quote unquote controversy in it. Like it's the one we'll get past the censors the easiest. So we're choosing this one. So Dr. No, we're in Jamaica. And this really is in the book, the three men pretending to be blind men going to the country club um, to shoot a Dr. Strangways, who ends up being, he, they mentioned that he's 006 in this, by the way, which I had never totally realized before. I didn't catch in that. In this film, for one brief second, they were like, ah, oh, 006. And I went, wait, they killed 006? So whatever. Strangways works for MI6. He has discovered something in Jamaica that needs to be further investigated by James Bond. Uh, we meet the wonderful James Bond in a uh, a casino in England. They're in England at this point. Yeah, yeah it's Le Cirque, I think. Yeah, we're in England. We meet James Bond in a casino. We meet him through the lens of a very glamorous, beautiful woman named Sylvia Trench, who I love, by the way, that Bond, James Bond, that famous quote, comes like as a response to a woman. Like he copied off a woman. We give him all this credit, Bond, James Bond, when she she was like Trench, Sylvia Trench. So really, it's Sylvia Trench that's very cool. So we meet James Bond. He's very sexy. Women are throwing themselves at him. He gets called into his government agency. He's a 007 agent, which means he has a license to kill, and he's a very glamorous spy in a very glamorous suit. Um, so he has to go to Jamaica and he has to figure out what happened to Strangways and solve this whole mystery of what's been going on there. Why have people been disappearing? What's going on? So Bond goes to Jamaica. Um, he eventually meets up with these two people, Felix Leiter, who is a recurring character in the Bond series, and uh, Quarrel, who is, I think, mistreated in this film, but we'll get there. And with Quarrel's help, he ends up getting to this mysterious island, Crab Key, that is owned by Dr. No. And this is the island where everything's been going wrong and America's rockets have been getting knocked down and they can't figure out why. It's all happening at Crab Key. So they get there and they meet up with this girl named Honey Rider, whose name in the book is Honey Child. And I'm really glad they stopped that. She's very beautiful and wearing a bikini and... Um, she has a, you know, a, a rape backstory, which we'll get into, too. That's, I guess, like a Bond female trope. There's like a lot of rape backstories, I guess. Anyway, um, so he meets Honey Rider. Honey and Quarrel and Bond try to find their way to Dr. No. They get captured by him. Uh, he is played by Joseph Wiseman, who is not a Chinese person, but is playing a half Chinese person. And it's very uncomfortable. And he admits his plan for world domination. And he has a giant wall that's an aquarium. And, uh, you know, he's kind of the first basis for Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. And he's like, ah, oh, you've discovered my plan to take over the world by like, what's he really going to do? It's just like intercepting rockets from America is his plan to take over the world. Like, not a lot of it makes a lot of sense. I didn't follow it. It doesn't matter. It's a Bond film. It's like, he's like, I'm Inspector and we're evil geniuses and we're just going to take over the world. And you're like, but how? It doesn't matter. So um, kidnaps Bond, kidnaps Honey, Bond escapes and he saves Honey, and they kill Dr. No in a vat of waste, of radium or whatever that chemical is. And, and he wants to hold on. But you guys, he has metal hands. So since he has metal hands, he can't hang on. Oh, no. And he falls into the vat. 
And then, uh, yeah, and then they, they get rescued on a boat by Felix Leiter, but they'd rather have sex in the boat. So they let go of their rescue rope and they just, they just do it in the boat. And that's the end of the film. So that's Dr. No. Um, I mentioned before, like the book series, this was not the first book. The first book is Casino Royale, which they end up making like the first Daniel Craig movie when they redo all of that. Um, so I think it's really interesting they chose to start here, but I also think it's really interesting, like, this was the first time we ever saw Bond on film. So all of these things we kind of take for granted about Bond, we're seeing for the first time here. So, like, I wanted to go through this with you guys. Like, we saw some tropes getting established here, but, like, what do you guys feel are Bond tropes in general? Like, what screams Bond to you? For example, we get the Bond theme written by Monty Norman. Like, this is the first time we ever hear the James Bond theme. It's not Sean Connery. It's Bond in the lens. It's, it's not him. It's not. Can I tell you, that confused the shit out of me as a younger person, because what I thought was that James Bond was getting killed, because I was like, that's clearly not James Bond. That's Bob Simmons, the stuntman. But I could always tell it wasn't Bond, so I was like, I'm confused what we're supposed to be getting out of this. That was really filmed in a gun barrel, I found out. Yeah. It was a pinpoint camera put in a 38 caliber gun barrel. And um, they just, like, recorded it with the stuntman. But, yeah, that is really that's so cool. confusing when you're like, but that's not James Bond. I can tell from here. Whatever. It's the first one that you're seeing on film. It's cool that you see how that is going to evolve in the future films, but how it's uh, how it's here. And I think dovetailing off of that, you know, there's not really a, a, a Bond theme um, in Dr. No, but we do get, as, as you pointed out, a little bit of the three blind mice as they started to kind of walk into the into the frame and you start the action. So I thought that was really cool too. You can see all the seeds uh, of, of where um, the Bond tropes sort of grow here, which is really, really fun to revisit. Um, but I think it's refreshing that you see this one standalone film without all that stuff and it just makes it even more unique. Well, and I think what's also interesting too is this film had no budget. Like no one thought it was gonna be that big of a hit. Nobody was really thinking ahead. So they're like doing what they can to make everything work. But I almost think that serves this film better. That's what makes it so cool. And the fact that they invested so heavily in, they, they chose a really young director specifically for his style. And apparently he in real life was very Bondy. <laughs> like he had a really cool tailor. He had a really cool person doing his hair. And the woman that played, um, I almost called her Pennywise. That's not correct. Miss Money Penny. Money Penny. She was Money Penny 14 times, right? She's in so many of these films. And she was saying that the director, Terrence Young, like taught Sean Connery to be Bond. And it's really like Terrence Young's style that like creates our whole image and idea of Bond on screen because of this first venture. And like, how much foresight to pick someone young? Like that, I think that's really cool. Well, I guess they might not have had a lot of choices either. I'm sure they asked other people that turned them down. They asked Guy Hamilton, who does like all those Bonds later on, and he turned it I down. I thought the visual style of the movie was actually um, really, really cool. It was very well very well shot. I mean, all of the Bond films, for the most part, with the exception of like a couple of really like not so great Roger Moore ones and Timothy Dalton ones, have a really great visual style. But this one has beautiful shots of Jamaica. The way that um, the production design and the set design is for Dr. No's chambers, that whole tarantula scene, like, all of it is very, like, very well done. You know, it's very well directed. 
Well, and that's, okay, so those are all tropes, too. We had kind of touched on tropes earlier. I feel like tropes that end up showing up in Bond are, like, you get your opening credit sequence that's, like, this insane, like, visual extravaganza. And you're right, we got that this time. And I guess our Bond song, I would actually say it would be Underneath the Mango Tree. I feel like that's the Bond <laughs> theme of this. Like, that's the music. You walk away singing it, and you're like, I hate this song. Oh, I wish I didn't know Boop-a-loop was a word. Does that end up, like, if I go to Spotify to that James Bond playlist that we we discovered a few weeks ago is under the mango tree in there. I hope so. Well, that's why I want to talk about the songs later because you guys impressed me so much. I have almost zero knowledge of Bond music. I'm not there, but you guys knew them and could name them. And I cannot wait for this portion of the show when we get to it. But yeah, like the other Bond tropes are like Bond girls. Steph had touched on like gadgets and Q doing the gadgets. You've got crazy over the top villains. You've got like tongue in cheek humor. You've got tailored suits and you've got really nice cars and you've got the crazy locales and what else did i write down oh lackey speeches of like they'll get you bond monologues you've also got the first james bond death pun it's a death pun that's exactly the correct term i love it <laughs> the james bond death pun it's uh i think they were going to a funeral and we get his drink we get the famous drink the martini Shaken, not stirred. Although I don't think he actually says that. I think someone says it to him, like, I've made your martini for you. And we all know that gin martinis should not be shaken, but this was a vodka martini, so it's okay. That's true. I feel That's relieved true. to know this. Did they give him his drink when he got into their little chambers that they set up for him in the... Uh... No, it was one of the servers came in. It was either at the casino when he was with Sylvia Trench, or it was later on when he got to his hotel room and someone brought him... Like a server brought it to him and described it to him. And he was like, good. And that was, <laughs> that was the drink. Sarah, you touched on something interesting, which is uh, you mentioned that his martini is uh, shaken and it's vodka, right? Apparently, like his drink order shows that he actually has very working class roots because it's not the proper way to prepare a martini. What I learned from the film Anti-Mame, because I fucking love Anti-Mame, is <laughs> that if gin is in your martini, it should be stirred but vodka can be shaken. So it's like not that he orders it wrong because it is vodka. If it was gin, we would all be like, no, 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 you've bruised the gin. But I think um, that's an excellent point to bring up, that it's like he has working class roots and that might be how you know that from getting your vodka martini shaken. Can I bring up a little martini fact? Yes, what's your martini fact? Back in the 60s, a traditional martini glass was something like only like three to four ounces. So they're very, very small. So you'd have to drink a lot of martinis to get like kind of loaded. Um, but nowadays, like let's say you go to TGI Fridays and order like a megatini or whatever, or a normal like martini glasses, more of an eight ounce pour. So martini glasses were very small back then. And you had to drink more in order to get a little bit of a buzz. It makes me feel better for them because I do get concerned because I think about how I get hit by a martini. You know, that shit's strong. And when you see how many they consume, you're like, how are they alive? How are they still moving? How can he do his job? They should only be drinking a little bit of those martinis because they're like martini big gulps. We need our tiny cute martinis again, but they should also lower the price because you're getting less. But no one no one will listen to us on this, but it's a great idea. What do you think the prices were for the martinis on Crab Key? I got to think that they were dirt cheap. Crab Key, they would have been free because they would have been, you know, murder that's martinis. True. That's, but that's true. That's in true. Jamaica, my God, I, that's a great question. I'm really bad with money and old times. Like five cents, right? Maybe. <laughs> 
take this bit. I want a martini. <laughs> take this bit. Who knows? It introduces a lot of stuff from the Bond universe that wasn't supposed to be in, the, or that wasn't in the book, but they put in the movie. Like Spectre isn't in the book and they added that so they could like set up a Bond universe, which is going to be like, Spectre is all of the evil people that work together. And they're like the villains of Bond world. I forgot what Spectre stood for. It had been so long. So when he, when Dr. No sounded it out, it's very villainy. It's so villainy. Special executive. Counterintelligence, terror, revenge, and extortion. It's so evil. And they work together, which is very funny because you wouldn't expect people that are like the special executive for counterintelligence of terrorism, revenge, and extortion to work together. Like you wouldn't expect a community to form, but it really does. You'd expect them to be all at each other's throat. Also, like usually villains don't think they're the villains, right? So for you to be like, yeah, guess what? Terrorism and revenge are all part of it. <laughs> Let's be a community of terrorism and revenge. We can do it together, guys. It's good to be self-aware though. So you had mentioned earlier how beautiful it was because they're really shooting in Jamaica. They, they really did shoot in London. They really did shoot in Jamaica. And where they were shooting was down the road from Ian Fleming's real house, Goldeneye. And he would like stop by the set. And what I enjoyed in doing my research was, so I have this thing where like almost everyone from the past is absolutely terrible and you just expect them to be terrible most of the time. I was expecting Ian Fleming to be positively awful, but he was not. And I was so relieved by that. Ian Fleming. Okay. So he worked in the Naval Intelligence during World War II and his wartime service and journalism inspired the character of Bond. So his very first Bond book was 1952. He wrote Casino Royale. Fun fact, he also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which terrified me as a child. Did you guys like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Did it terrify you? I watched it. It didn't terrify me, but I was always amused by Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, mostly because of the name. It's a great name, but they trick you because they're like, Dick Van Dyke's in it. What a joy. And then there's a man with long nose that like steals children. That's, yeah. you don't expect it to go there, you know? That's pretty creepy. That's pretty creepy. You're like, am I going to get stolen? I don't think I ever saw it. It's intense. But Ian Fleming wrote it. So you're like, oh, okay. He wrote a Bond villain for children. I see it now. Um, but what I liked about him is that he had a cool marriage, which I think anytime someone has like a cool marriage, I'm more down with them than if they didn't. Um, but he married this woman, Anne Charteris, who divorced a vicant. <laughs> she was married to the vicant Rothmore. And she like gave up her title to be with him. And then he died in 1964 at 56 of heart disease because he was a heavy smoker and drinker. And I believe that tracks. I wanna show you his picture. This is his photo. So people at home, I'll put this on Instagram so you can see it. This is his back cover photo. It's him with a cigarette holding a gun in his teeny tiny author portrait. And it really cracks me up because it's too on brand. It's too much. It's too posed. Do you think that like some publicist told Ian Fleming, they're like, hey, this is your book, do this pose. And he's got the gun and he's like, or do you think it was him? It's like, I'm really James Bond. And he like, and he did it himself. Like, I think I could flip a coin and, and believe either outcome. I think it was a mix. I bet you he was like, I'm not doing it without a cigarette. And they were like, you have to do it with a gun too. And he was like, okay. And so he's got the cross of the gun and the cigarette. You'll notice he's also wearing a, a t-shirt button down, which is a terrible look. That's the least oh, cool no. thing I can think of. With a bow tie. With a bow tie. He looks like um those people that used to work at the old timey drugstores and made you Sundays, except he has a gun and a cigarette. My last like Ian Fleming fact is that his idea for Bond was nothing like Sean Connery or like any of the Bonds to come after. He pictured him as like a regular ordinary dude. And he specifically cited the singer Hoagie Carmichael 
a singer from the 1940s who is in one of my favorite movies of all time, The Best Years of Our Lives, that like small piano man he pictured as James Bond is more of like an everyman. And I love that. It goes back to Steph's Martini observation of like, he just wanted kind of a normal looking dude who could get lost in the crowd. I read that Ian Fleming knew Christopher Lee and Christopher Lee was in the British Secret Service in the, I guess, I forget, like the first or second world war. I forget what it was, but he was in the Secret Service and they think they being, I don't know, like the internet or whatever, thinks that uh, Christopher Lee might have, also, might have also been an inspiration for Ian Fleming for James Bond. Oh, I love that. Because what I read about like when they were actually like casting and making this movie is that Terrence Young, the director, had worked with Christopher Lee and wanted him to be Dr. No. And he oh, turned really? it down. Yeah. And Ian Fleming wanted Noel Coward to be Dr. No. And he wrote him back a letter that said, no, no, no. That's great. Yeah, those were like the top two choices for Dr. No. It sounded like a lot of the inspiration or maybe even some of the stories of being a spy came from their friendship. I also want to mention that I have not seen all of the Bonds. I just want to put that out there. I've seen a very respectable amount of James Bond films, but I am not an expert. I just want to put that out there. Are we counting the two sort of uh, redheaded stepchildren Bond movies? Okay, here? so... I don't think that we should. And I'm so, that actually was a perfect segue to the producers of the film. So certain people own the rights to Bond, but over the years, there were like two separate movies that got made. One was a comedy, Casino Royale. And the other one was, I think, Never Say Never Again, which was a remake of Thunderball made like 20 years later and by a totally different production company. And I don't know how they got the rights to do it. Those are the anomalies of the franchise. The ones I've seen, I tend to be someone, if I like something, I stick with it. So I've seen like all of the Sean Connery Bonds, except for I hated the one that Roald Dahl wrote because it's just really awful. And then um, I saw the George Lazenby one I saw uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then I saw only one Roger Moore, no Timothy Dalton's, and two Pierce Brosnan's, I think. And then um, all of the Daniel Craig's. So I have a very strong beginning and ending relationship with the James Bond franchise. I think that's probably the right the right balance. Pierce Brosnan was, I, in my recollection, a correction, like a fan correction from Timothy Dalton. The Daniel Craig ones are great, and the Sean Connery ones are great. But Pierce, the Pierce Brosnan ones at the time, we had just gone from like really cartoonish Roger Moore, which I love, but I could I listen, I, I admit they were very cartoonish, and then. Uh, Timothy Dalton, which nobody really uh, thought physically like he in inhabited the role. And a lot of people wanted Pierce Brosnan to be James Bond when they announced Timothy Dalton. And they were like, why is it Remington Steele, James Bond? So then when we got Pierce Brosnan with like GoldenEye, which also spawned like the first person shooter video games, like everyone was like, oh, these are great. When you go back and watch the Pierce Brosnan ones. Eh. They don't hold up. That's the issue because he's not a bad Bond, but his movies are not very good because I, I think I watched them after the fact. I watched them as an adult, not in the 90s. So I don't have that like nostalgia coating over them. So when I watched them, I was like, there's a car made of ice. Is this what we're doing right now? We're watching a nice car. <laughs> all right. Okay. I think about invisible cars all the time and what a terrible idea they are. Like, this is horrible logistically. Like, whoever thought that would be a good idea? The Bond people, they were like, we've got it. The future is now. Forget the internet and iPads. Invisible cars. Ice. Invisible cars really, really, the premise strongly relies on a great driver. 
But more facts about this whole like franchise. It started because, okay, so first of all, Hollywood turned down the franchise because they thought it was too sexual and too British. And I got a pretty woman that and just be like, big mistake, huge. Hollywood could have had this and they said no. They were right on their reasons to reject it. I mean, it is too British. I was shocked at how sexual it was for, even Dr. No, what you were saying is, is the tame one. I was just like, wow, this is pretty out there for a 62. They added shit. Like in the source material, there is no Sylvia Trench. There is no Miss Taro. Like that was all added for the movie to make him appear like he is the paragon of men. To be like, look at what a man, this sexy man is. All of these women are throwing themselves at him. That wasn't even in the book. The production side of this is that this guy, Harry Saltzman, had the rights already. And then Albert Cubby Broccoli... Um, who's related to Barbara Broccoli, who now like runs it. She's, you know, was she? She's his daughter. Yeah, I think. I think so. Yeah. But what a great, what a great nickname, what Cubby. What a great name, Cubby Broccoli. Why don't you call me Cubby Fonseca? Can I call you Cubby Broccoli Fonseca? Sure. Well, I think it's a little weird if I call my husband Cubby Fonseca. I can call you Cubby, but Cubby Fonseca is just a little odd. I don't know. That's on you. I don't think it's weird. Do we know why they called him Cubby? They didn't okay. say. All I know is that Cubby wanted the rights, but Harry Saltzman had him. And Cubby was like, look, I've got this great production company. Why don't you let me produce this with you? And we're going to have some great pictures. And he was correct. Um, so they formed a partnership and they worked together until 1975. And then Harry Saltzman gave up his share like a fool and the Broccoli's kept it. Terrence Young imposed the stylish choices that would continue throughout the series. And he was the one that had the idea to make it humorous because he was like, look, this isn't working if it's just going to be like straight sex and straight violence. We need something in the middle to get this past the censors and to make this palatable. Otherwise, it's going to be a joke. So they added the humor and that like makes it. That's it's so Bond. It's so great. I am obsessed with the magnified footage of the goldfish in the aquarium and apparently the budget was so small that um they had a projection because in the book they describe it as being like the whole entire wall is a glass piece in the ocean and you see whales swimming by it's like this whole big thing and so in this movie it's like the goldfish and the reason is because the budget was so small that they just had a projector and they were going to use stock footage and the only fish they could find stock footage of were goldfish so they magnified them and then added it to the script after to be like yes we are aware this looks stupid there's a reason where are they pulling the stock footage from in the 60s is it like shutterstock is there like a 1960s shutterstock yep they hooked their typewriter up to the internet and then they found it. it there must be a collection like a library well it's 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 british though right so it's like is it like bbc archives maybe and all they could find was goldfish it's great though i love it if jacques cousteau was around and he had some footage i would think cousteau and cubby broccoli would be friends and cubby could call cousteau and say hey cousteau Jacques, get me some footage. The other super fun thing about this that's like, I didn't know this, but once you know it, you're like, oh, that's cute, is, um, so again, they had no budget. They only had, they had under a million dollars, which like blows my mind because that's so little and this film made so much money. But there's, you know, when they go into Dr. Evil's lair, who's not Dr. Evil, sorry, when they go into Dr. No's lair <laughs> and, um, you know, you see all the stuff where they're like, it's modern, but old fashioned, ooh, they have a portrait of the Duke of Wellington. And it's supposed to be a famous portrait. It's supposed to be Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington. Um, and they had like a picture that they took from the National Gallery and they like had one of their staff people paint it. And um, it's that painting was actually stolen 
like just a little while before this movie was made. So it's like a cute in joke of like Dr. No was the thief that stole that painting. But I love that idea of like this famous stolen painting is in Dr. No's lair. But then also that painting got stolen from set. (laughs) The guy that made it wanted to keep it and someone stole it from set and they don't know who did. And I kind of love that. The stolen painting was stolen. Um, And this script was doctored by a woman. Maybaum wrote the script. I didn't write down his first name. I just wrote Maybaum. But um, Joanna Harwood and Berkeley Mather, I can't read my own writing, helped work on it. And I love that like a woman was involved in some aspect of this highly misogynistic work. And then some other fun facts, just in general, about the casting of Bond. Originally, the idea was like Cary Grant. They wanted a Cary Grant, either him or his type. Um, And some other actors they looked at who I don't know, but maybe you know. Do you know? Like Richard Johnson was one of them. Patrick McGowan. Patrick McGowan was definitely in uh, Braveheart. I think he was the old uh, the old king. There's a really great line in High Fidelity where John Cusack is asking Jack Black at the bar for the name of the actor who played. And Jack Black is just at the bar and he just yells out, McGowan! That's a deep cut. My cuts are so deep, they're just, they're invisible. The Prisoner, that's McGowan. That's why he's famous. And then he definitely was in Braveheart. The other person or people that they considered, they considered David Niven, who turned it down and who ended up being Bond in the joke one in Casino Royale. He was Bond in the not uh, sanctioned Bond film. And then Roger Moore was an early consideration, but they said they said no to him because they thought he was too young and too pretty. And he ends up doing the most Bond films, which is so ironic. Julie Christie was originally considered to be Honey Rider so they could put some clout in the production because she was a classy actress. But then they were like, ooh, do we want someone classy or do we want someone more voluptuous? And they said, oh, we want someone more voluptuous. And then they went with Ursula Andress. And they dubbed all her lines, which kills me. I didn't know that, but they did. Apparently her Swiss-German accent was too thick. So this woman named Nikki Vanderzeil dubbed her voice in this film. So they really did cast her just because she looked good in a bikini and that that breaks my heart a little, but it's okay. That's a hell of a dub job because I didn't pick that up. Same, I had no idea. I'm usually pretty good at that. They, they must have worked overtime on matching all of that. That was pretty impressive. Or maybe we were so into her body that we didn't even look at her mouth. We were like, she's in a bikini. And then we weren't totally like focusing on her mouth, which is sad. It's sad. Checkmate. Correct. But you know, that might be a fact. So you said that um, they chose this film because it was like the least sexy and the least violent. I think they felt like it was least controversial. I read that they chose this novel to start with because it was um, the fewest locations as opposed to his other novels where like he's, you know, running around all over the world. This one was like one location and that helped with the budget. I mean, that's probably the real re- Like, they might have said, like, this is the least controversial, but then in reality, they were like, there's only two locations. <laughs> that all sounds like it could fit together, for sure. It's still a, a, an on-location shoot in Jamaica. I don't know the economics of the 1960s, you know, the Caribbean, but I'd still imagine that an on-location shoot, shoot is still, um, you know, more more expensive. Well, I guess the other location was Pinewood Studios, right? That's where they were. That's where they shot the rest of it. Everything that looks like leather is really plastic, and like half of the sets are just painted. Like half the time, when it's books or something, it's not. So I feel like they really spent no money in the studio and like all of the money on going to Jamaica. And then they got a little bit of extra money to do an explosion at the end. And that was it. it sounds like my first apartment. <laughs> 
<laughs> the books were painted on and look at the pleather. I would like to do um, a comparison of Sean Connery and the character of Coral as played by John Kitz Miller. So um, what I learned about Sean Connery, I mean, he was born in Scotland. He was born in Edinburgh, but I think we all knew that. He had a lot of jobs. Uh, the internet really wanted me to know that he was a milkman as a young lad. And he joined the Royal Navy at the age of 16 in 1946 and got two tattoos. They said mom and dad and Scotland forever. But I wonder where they are. That's adorable. But he was discharged from the Royal Navy at 19 because of an ulcer. And then he got into bodybuilding, as you do. He also joined the cast of the musical South Pacific uh, while in Edinburgh. On a day off, he played football on the pitch and a scout saw him and said, would you like to play football professionally? And he said, no, I think I'm going to be an actor. And so he stayed with the cast of South Pacific and history was written. He was one of the chorus people. He was one of the guys on the beach that sings like, there is nothing like a dame. And I would love to see him do that, like so much. So there's that. And while he was in this uh, South Pacific tour, he was also becoming friends with Michael Caine. He somehow met Michael Caine and they became really good buddies for their whole lives, which is also really cute. Did Connery ever do anything with Michael Caine? Because talk about two of the best accents to impersonate the trip. Uh, Steve Coogan comes to mind. You do yours. What was yours? I'm not going to bury another Batman. He's like, how many Batmans do you bury? There's, so there's that classic impersonation of Michael Caine, but then like there's a million of great Conneries, right? The internet has revealed to me that in 1975, Sean Connery and Michael Caine starred in The Man Who Would Be King, a film I've never seen. You know what? I have never seen it either, but the internet told me that that was one of his hits. So I guess it was a hit. If the internet said it. Uh, it looks like there's one other movie that Michael Caine and Sean Connery did together, and it's called A Bridge Too Far. I've heard of that film. A Bridge Too Far is a classic, and it's a phrase I quote quite regularly when someone is out of line. I go, a bridge too far, sir, a bridge too far. Um, I'm going to continue with the rest of Sean Connery because this is my bummer. I like Sean Connery, and then I found out some stuff, and then it made me sad. So I'm going to tell you the stuff that made me sad. Well, first, I'm going to tell you that he won an Oscar for The Untouchables. So good for him. Um, also, people at home, he was in seven Bond films. He was in Hitchcock's Marnie. He was in The Rock, Murder on the Orient Express, The Man Who Would Be King, Highlander, Robin and Marion, The Hunt for Red October, The Untouchables. Those are all his films. He passed away on Halloween last year. Sarah, did you mention Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? How could I forget? I'm so sorry. He was the father in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. The second best Indiana Jones film. The second best. I mean, yeah, I guess it the is. Best the best is Raiders. Best. The best mm -hmm. is Raiders. Can we all just at the very end do our best Sean Connery impersonation? A bridge too far. A bridge too far. A bridge far. too far. Nope, I can, I'm really bad at it. <laughs> You're better than I am. Uh, Celebrity Jeopardy. That's all the Sean Connery I can do. That's probably where we all get our impersonations from. Celebrity Jeopardy on SNL. Um, anyway, so this is the shitty stuff about Sean Connery. He was very likely abusive to his wife, and he said that he thinks it's totally okay to hit a woman, you just have to hit him differently. And um, a lot of his former partners and wives did cite abuse. But then in 2006, he said, I was wrong, and it's never okay to hit anybody. And I'm like, that's a bridge too far. It's a little bit late for that. I don't know. He seems like a good guy. And then you hear that, and you're like, damn it, damn it. He was abusive. Times are different. 
Uh, I don't know, man. Hitting a lady. I don't know if it was ever good to hit a lady, right? Well, he thought it was. <laughs> I mean, I guess like the honeymooners, like one of these days, Alice, to the moon, like, you know. He says one of these days, one of these days, like it was a bridge too far to harm Alice Crandon. You're right. Whereas Sean Connery was like, these are the days, not not one of these days. But A bridge too close. A bridge not close enough. So this leads me to talk about Coral, because this is what bugs me. Like on screen, this is going to be in the modern lens portion as well. I don't love the treatment of Coral. And if he is working with the CIA, they never let him be on the same level as Bond and Felix Leiter. They both get to wear suits and they get to talk like normal people, but they put this like stupid stereotypical accent on Coral and he never gets to like look suave like them, even though he's doing the same shit they are. At least he's portrayed as brave and like a strong, smart friend, but they always put him as lesser. But in real life, the guy that played him is more badass than all these people. Ah, he should have been, he should have had more. Coral's name was John Kitzmiller. He was born in Battle Creek, Michigan, and he went to the University of Michigan, my alma mater, and got a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. He ended up becoming a captain in the US Army um, as an engineer in World War II, and he was stationed in Italy in 1943. And then when the war was over, he ended up staying in Italy because both of his parents had died in the States around the same time, and he didn't really want to come back. One day he's at like an officer's club playing poker, and he gets discovered by um, some Italian directors, and they want to use him in a film. And um, he ends up being in over 50 European films. He often portrayed European characters fighting racism. Um, and then in 1957, he won the Best Actor Award at Cannes, and he was the first black actor to ever win that. No way. Right? Yeah, he's the first black actor to win Best Actor at Cannes. And he has just like such an impressive, like to me, all of his stuff is impressive. Like Sean Connery didn't get a degree in chemical engineering from Michigan. And he's like a white dude. The obstacles this man must have faced and overcome. And then just to be a badass, but then like be the most famous for playing Coral, who like, you know, being portrayed as a more like negative stereotypical kind of thing. Oh, and he was married to this woman, uh, Dusica Bejique. I don't know how to say her name, but he died shortly after they were married. He died pretty young. This is 1913 to 1965. But I don't know. I loved his story. I just thought he was so cool. He sounds more Bond than anybody else. I love this character. I thought Quora was, was a G. I always got the sense that he was many natives of a certain country who helped foreign intelligence. He's not a pawn, but he's he's like the knowledgeable you know, local hired hand. He goes against his own nature to go to Crab Key because I think when they originally wanted him to go, he was like, he was like, yeah, I ain't gonna go down there. It's dragons. I mean, dude, I wouldn't go down there. I'm not going to Crab Key for these well, two. He's not gonna, yeah, risk his life for somebody else's government. And in the end, he's kind of like, you know what? I think, you know, overall, this is probably the best thing to do to maybe defeat an evil villain, but they don't know it's an evil villain yet. So some shit we still got to talk about is like the male fantasy of Bond. Like they show us early on in this film, like Bond is the paragon of men. Like all of these gorgeous women throw themselves at him. He's well-dressed. He belongs to a fancy gentleman's club and clearly has money. He always says the right thing. When he throws his hat, it will land upon a hat rack magically. His secretary flirts with him the way a secretary should, you know, the, all of this stuff. Like, what do you guys think about it? Oh, and he always knows what to say and he always knows what to do. Like, he's never surprised by anything. He's always, 
either got a plan, he's thought ahead, or he knows how to behave in the moment and it's like always correct. I think maybe that's the male fantasy behind it of like, I know that there's like this psychology thing that says men's greatest fears are being humiliated and embarrassed, being laughed at. Um, and they say women's biggest fears are like, you know, legitimate fears, like, um, you know, being dying and raped and, you know, um, but that tracks for me, you know, Bond is never laughed at. He's the one that makes the jokes. So I get why this is kind of like the male fantasy. I might be in the minority here when it comes to how I view um, James Bond, but I always think of James Bond as a spy first and his license to kill the fact that he's like a, a super spy supersedes all of those traits vis-a-vis -vis being a man, right? So like he's leveraging his own persona in a way that is, he's using it to his advantage, just like a, a very a good looking woman would leverage that in her spy craft, which we see in other spy films. I always think of James Bond as a spy first and a man second. So when I think of all the things that he does as a spy, I think, oh, that's kind of slimy, but he's a spy. So he kind of has to do this. And not to throw Stephanie into the mix here without uh, getting her permission first. Wait, is she a spy? You gave Stephanie, up her cover. Stephanie, I'm here to disclose. Stephanie is a spy. Now I have to kill you. The fact that he's a spy first, what Stephanie brought up a good point yesterday, which was if you're a spy, you kind of have to do all that sleazy stuff because the mission is one and whatever else is two. So I've always thought of James Bond as that. Now, Let's say he's not a spy. Let's say James Bond is just a super suave government official. There's tons of problematic behavior. But in terms of like the male fantasy. I think it's the men watching it having the fantasy. Them being like, that's what I want to be like. That's what I, you know, aspire to. That idea. You're right. Everything that you just touched upon for men, including myself, those are things that we, for me, there's less about things that I am afraid to be, but more things that I aspire to be, which is I'd like to be suave. If I walked into a room, I'd like to take off this hat and throw it onto a hat rack and have it land. I think that'd be pretty cool. If I if I had a snazzy comeback every time someone said something clever to me, I think that would be pretty awesome. So there is an aspirational nature to James Bond for men. Does James Bond speak to the things that we fear that we're not? Maybe, maybe that's in play as well. But I always thought of James Bond as a spy first and a man second. I like putting that lens on it because you're right. It's not him being a certain way. It's like him doing his job. It makes him more understandable. Yeah, well, it kind of raises an interesting point in that, you know, we talk about, you know, what if he had another job? What if he did join Spectre? And what if he was a villain? Like, would he change? Like, I mean, again, him being a spy excuses a lot of it, right? Because the mission comes first. But he is misogynistic. You know, he has these behaviors. I don't know. Like, it's not great. This was one of the first films to show, like, cold-blooded killing on screen. And that was a big deal at the time. Like, now I don't think we think twice about it. I think we see so much violence, we don't clock it. But when he kills Dent, the geologist, he's a geologist, right? When he yeah. kills that professor, it's in cold blood. It's not self-defense, really. And that was a big deal at the time when this came out. And I think that's like really interesting. This was also, this had to do with Penny, Pennywise, I keep wanting to call her, Money Penny. So like <laughs> one of the kind of yucky things is how he treats Money Penny. Like she works for him, she's his secretary and he's like groping her and kissing her and stuff. But what I was feeling this time around while watching it was that it was more of a theater kid vibe. <laughs> Like, it was less scummy spy and more like, we're in a show together. And that just that just made me laugh. That was like a scummy diffusion. I don't really have a conclusion for this thought, but it, you know, it kind of raises that 
question of like, you know, what makes it okay? I mean, it isn't really okay, but, but it's interesting to think about. Imagine how frightening a villain that was James Bond. Like that would be terrifying because it'd be like a very suave villain that you'd find yourself, you'd be drawn towards. Or, or would the fact that James Bond is doing uh, more villainous things under the same cover make him be like, ugh, that's James Bond. Ugh. I don't know. I mean, his treatment of Miss Tarot, I was thinking about that. Why is it so gross? And part of it is we as an audience are supposed to digest it because we know she's the bad guy. So we're supposed to be like, well, she's getting what's coming because she's the bad guy. But like taking that lens off of it, it doesn't, the treatment is still disgusting. Like the way let's get into it takes advantage of her. First off, I wasn't clear, like, was, is Money Penny like definitely his secretary in this film? She's M's secretary. Yeah, yeah that's what it seemed like. Okay, just wanted to but clarify that. That's what I liked that. about Skyfall. Was Skyfall... I didn't love that in Skyfall, we learned that she was like a field agent that didn't do a good job. So she was relegated to being a secretary. And that made me go, oh, I don't like that. But I do like that they explain their history, that they do have a history in that. Because this is, again, they remind me of theater kids. They look like cuddly little cats, but it is an inappropriate relationship to have with, with a coworker in an office. It sounded like James Bond was like stringing Money Penny along. Like she mentioned something like, "You never take me to, you never take me to the casino." She says something like that, which hinted to me that like Bond and Money Penny have this thing, but Bond's always traveling, and it's not a really serious thing. But Money Penny's kind of like resigned to the fact that oh, it's just James Bond. That's also problematic too because she's just like lying in wait. Like when will it be my turn? I also think. It's kind of a joke, too. Like, I don't think anything's really happened. I think she just likes to push his buttons because she knows. I added that storyline for her, though. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but that's what I added to feel more comfortable. So her name is Lois Maxwell. She played Money Penny 14 times, and then Bernard Lee played uh, M 10 times. But she was originally offered, she got to pick between either playing Sylvia Trench, who is considered the first Bond girl, or Money Penny. And she ended up going with Money Penny, and it ends up being like a great career move. But yeah, uh, can we also talk about Sylvia Trench being like the first Bond woman? There's got to be a better word than Bond girl. There's not. Okay, she's the only Bond girl to appear twice because she appears in From Russia with Love, and they, she was supposed to be in six films, but then they were like, "Nah, two is enough." Wow. One of the Daniel Craig's. No, I can't say Bond girl. What is it? Uh, Bond femmes? Bond femme. Ooh, that's fun. Bond femmes. Wasn't Daniel Craig's? Wasn't one of them in... I'm trying to remember if there was a Sylvia Trench. It would have been in Quantum of Solace, right? Am I wrong about that? Yeah, no, it would have been in Quantum of Solace. Because Casino Royale... Well, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen those movies. But but yeah, I mean, come on, get with it. See them already. Let's move on to Miss Taro, who's infinitely more complicated. First of all, it is not an Asian actress playing this part that they clearly are intending to be an Asian part. And they originally had cast Miss Jamaica... And she couldn't do it. And so I'm like, wait, I'm sorry. So a black actress was going to be playing an Asian person. But then you were like, no, we want a white person playing an Asian person. Doesn't totally hold up at all. Um, and then the character of Miss Taro, she's a spy working for Dr. No. And since he's Chinese, a lot of his staff is Chinese. And when they didn't have Chinese people in casting, they decided to staff his henchmen. His, his staff. <laughs> his, his staff. It seemed like a nice word. Um, they put, there's a lot of yellow face and it's really uncomfortable. Um, so we're going to name that. And Dr. No himself is in yellow face and that's very uncomfortable. But yeah, the character of Miss Taro, they do dirty. It was one of those things where Bond, no, she's a spy. I feel like he rapes her. I, I, To me, that didn't feel comfortable. I forget. She sets Bond up to die. It doesn't work. 
He ends up coming to her house in a, also a very ridiculous scene of like no woman in the history of women has ever like laid on a bed with their hair and makeup gorgeous in a towel and like kicked their legs behind them to like answer a phone call and go like, hello. I don't think that's ever happened in real life. Bond ends up coming to her house. It's kind of a trap. They have sex. Uh, he ends up getting her arrested. It's not kind of a trap. It's a, it's a it's trap. A on, it's a trap. Like he was going to get killed. It's true. But you're right. It's hard with the spy games because she's a spy too. And she's a spy for the bad guy. So they're using their spy tactics. She's not a very good spy. She's a terrible spy. I mean, that whole move by the door. I mean, Bond sniffs it out in a second. He's like, yeah, we have dropping by the keyhole. He's seeing his superior and like, she's just like being a bad spy. And he doesn't think to like mention like, by the way, that chick who's working your, you know, your desk might want to check her out. So does Bond set the whole thing in motion when he notices that Tarot is just like, just obviously spying and he sets up this rendezvous. He's like, I've got the afternoon off. Is he setting this all in motion because he knows that she might put him into a trap. I think so, but that's just me. By the way, that whole scene where he's driving, I mean, talk about like, who drives like that? Come on. We should all drive that way. Connor's driving <laughs> like this. It's like, it's like that scene in Airplane when like they take off the gears. <laughs> he's like doing that. He looks like he's surprised that that's all happening. I didn't clock these scenes super good. So I'm glad you're giving this full description. Full disclosure, I sat down to watch Dr. No three times and each time, including the last time I fell asleep. It's not because the movie was boring. It's because if you put me in front of a movie in a semi-lit environment, I'm going to sleep. I even build in the time. Last night, I built in time to go to sleep. So that said, I've seen a lot of these scenes over and over again. Well, I do want to add, if this makes you feel better, I myself, every time I watch Goldfinger, I fall asleep. I like wake up and finish it. But I think there's this thing about the old Bonds, like specifically Sean Connery ones, where they have such a slow start that you have to pay attention to. It's like a great breeding ground for sleep. Like you can't help it sometimes. You have to make it past those opening moments to get to the big action stuff. Otherwise, you're going to fall asleep. I get it, as all I'm saying. I myself have gotten dozy during a Bond film, an old school Bond film. I'm going to use dozy, A, B, Dr. No is the green knight of the James Bond films. It is a it is a mood piece at the beginning. It's still good. It's worth watching. I didn't fall asleep because I was bored. I fell asleep because I was old and dozy. And watching it at a movie theater makes it better. I will say that also. I've seen it at the movie theater in the big screen and you don't get dozy when it's on a big screen. I never get dozy inside of the movie theater if I have a big Diet Pepsi and a big can of gummy worms. That doesn't make sense. Um, but I'm sure they sell them. Gummy worms should come in a can because then you can open a whole can of gummy worms. This should be a thing. A can of gummy worms is an excellent idea. We're going to copyright it and make it right now. We're going to make a lot of money. Let's open up the can of gummy worms next time. So, Miss Taro, James Bond, do we agree that he sets this chain of events into play by noticing that she's a bad spy? And he's like, oh, bad spy. Oh, why don't you come meet me for, uh, you know, afternoon delight or whatever. Does she call him to reschedule? Because he was going to, she was going to come to his hotel, right? No, she's like, I'm in the mountains. You should come to me. It's cooler in the mountains. Here's the exact directions, how to get there. And so I think 
He didn't know how shit was going to go down, but he knew something was going to go down. He wanted her to come to his hotel first so that he could put the moves on her, both from a spy perspective and from a man-woman perspective. But then she turns the tables on him. He goes into the mountains, does the bad driving, and then chases him off a cliff, uh, has the death pun, which is great. So let's just call it a wash to that point. They're both trying to like double cross each other. So he gets to her place and she clearly is not expecting him because she's expecting him to be dead. She's not expecting him, but her hair and makeup are still perfect. And even though she's in a towel, it looks stunning on her. I just want to add that. Was she out of the shower with the perfect? uh, Yes, she was just out of the shower with her perfect hair and makeup. He gets there. Now he clearly knows that she's tried to kill him. Clearly, without a doubt, she's an adversary working on behalf of Dr. No. Whereas before, like, he he had a strong suspicion, but now he knows. But she doesn't know he knows, but she's got to know. But she's smart. She knows something's up. Well, she's a bad spy. He, like, called her out very directly. By the way, I am looking this up. She is secretary to Mr. Plato Smith at Government House in Kingston, and she's a double agent. He was visiting his government agency. That wasn't with Dent. I got confused because remember how Dent at the club was like, that guy was always off with his secretary. I bet they ran off together and he ends up being the bad guy. So there's the other guy who's just so stupid that he has a secretary that's a spy and he doesn't know it. And Bond doesn't see a need to tell him, apparently. Eh, Bond's like, I'll fix it. He asks for the files on Dr. No. And then she's like, I don't know where they are. They're gone. So Stephanie, good call. She's a double agent. That is a good call. But he also probably doesn't want to share it because when Bond first gets to Jamaica, he likes to follow the rabbit hole all the way down. So he will put himself in danger to gain more information. And he doesn't like to share information with anybody else. So he like prefers to do it on his own. They showed us that he's that kind of person. So they're continuing on that path. It's a perfect segue into this entire Miss Taro escapade. Okay, so now he knows that she's a double agent. I want everyone's opinion here because this is fascinating to me. He's there, and this is the moment where he could go straight spy work and say, hey, guess what? You're you're coming with me. We're going back down to your bosses, and I'm going to expose you as a double agent. He could have called the cab then that he calls after their coitus. Do you think that that was professional? Or do you think that that was personal for Bond? Like, does he want to humiliate her and then end up at the same end result that he could have actually put into play right then and there when she got out of the shower? I think it's him being scummy. I think he's like, oh, you're going to try to kill me. I'm going to turn you into a a prostitute. Like, you're going to have to sleep with me. You're going to have to do all of the parts of your job that, you you know, like he's going to make her go there. I think that's fucked up. I think it's fucked up. I agree. I mean, it's all fucked up though, right? Like she very, very much trying to get him killed, right? You know, like her whole entire goal, get him killed. It's another thing where it raises kind of an interesting point of like, okay, well, I, I mean, it's all bad, right? There's no good about it, which kind of helps because like they both suck. They both suck. It could have been less sucky. He didn't have to be so creepy. Twice, by the way, he was creepy twice. They do the whole thing and then he's in bed and then he's talking about the whole like, oh, I want to get Italian. And she's like, let's eat here. I can make Chinese. He calls the cab and then brings her back in for seconds. No pun intended. Only after that, he puts her in the cab and goes away. Listen, I think James Bond was extremely villainous in that regard. He should have cut it off. He could have just put her in the cab. Right as soon as he knew that she was the one who set out the plot to kill him. Oh, right. Yeah. He could have just like tied her up or sat on her or whatever. Like didn't have to do any of that shit. Do you think though that that was for like 
that's part of this bullshit male fantasy thing though. And when I say a male fantasy, I'm talking about like 1950s patriarchal, like toxic white male fantasy. Do you think it's like part of that? Like any woman that tries to get the better of me, I'm literally going to fuck them. Like I'm going to fuck them over and I'm going to fuck them. It was kind of like this, oh, you're a woman and you're trying to best me. The man just gets killed. You're going to get an extra layer of like, humiliation is the only word I can think of. I think if we're dissecting it in this way, yeah, I think it absolutely is. I think the fact that it was a kind of an unspoken thing and people just went along with it as part of the narrative of the movie just shows you how sort of accepted that would be. Basically, James Bond had carte blanche in the audience's eyes as soon as Miss Taro threatened his life. He could do whatever he wanted to as a character and she was just, she just got what she deserved. I totally agree because it's like they frame her as the bad guy, but then there's like also this layer of racism on top of it. So not only is there a white actor in Yellowface playing this part that's supposed to be Asian, it's also like, she's supposed to be an Asian character. Even if an Asian woman is playing this part, it's still like this Asian stereotype that people put on Hollywood in like the 30s with Anna Mae Wong and how they have this sort of like quote unquote dragon lady bullshit stereotype of like over-sexualized Asian women and then like submissive Asian women. So like it's adding a stereotype on top of all that too. Like it's already shitty. And then there's like this whole other complex layer of it that adds those ideas to it too. It's fucked up in a lot of ways. And this was the one that they said was not the controversial. Well, again, none of that's in the book though. You know, they added all this sex for the movie. I love that they were like, it's the least sexual. And they were like, so let's add a bunch. I think it's also a matter of just like where society is, right? Like we we can look at this now through our lens and go like, these things are really wrong. But like back then they're just like, yeah, she did bad. And so this, this is her getting her comeuppance. I didn't really think I was going to take this position prior to this conversation, but I'm going to take this position. If you're a spy, right? You're operating on a different set of morals anyway. So the audience will look at the spy, like I was saying earlier, and forgive the spy for doing whatever the spy needs to do because he's the spy and it's, you know, but James Bond operates on a different set of spy rules, right? Because he's also, and I think this goes to what you were saying earlier about like the projection of the male, you know, fantasy, he's a spy and he's James Bond, right? So this movie kind of like, lays the groundwork for all of the future escapades for James Bond. So in an interesting way, like this is like sort of how James Bond gets to all of those escapades later on and and how they just kind of like become like legend, even though I think retroactively Dr. No wasn't the most popular. Bear with me here. There's still people in the 60s who like do the right thing. It's not like everybody was like racist. It's not like everybody was a womanizer. It's not like every man cheated on his wife. There were plenty of good people back in the 50s and 60s who didn't do any of this stuff. So I don't know. I think that's kind of shitty of James Bond to do that. He doesn't need to to show any sort of a superiority to anybody. He could have just been the bigger man and said, hey, you know what? You tried to kill me. Here's your tax sheet. But I think what Steph said was true too about like how that would also be more of the culture then. So like, yes, there were good people, but the culture was different. People would have thought about things differently and might not have noticed or cared as much. I guess two things I want to talk about. One, we have to get to the tarantula. And then I want to talk about like differences between the book and the movie too. One of the big differences that they cut because they didn't have the budget for it was in the book, this whole thing, like James Bond escaping Dr. No was an obstacle course diabolically set up by Dr. No. Um, so it's not just like he's in a jail and jumps through a grate because it's there. It was like that was purposely set up so he would enter the grate and then he would be forced to go through all of these tasks. And then the very last task is him fighting a giant squid. And that is 
isn't in the movie, but I wish it was. Oh. I know. And then um, Dr. No was operating under the guise in the book of his whole land being like a guano factory, which is like bird and bat shit for fertilizer and stuff. And they cut that. And I'm like, no, that would have been great. His death was different. I feel like in the book he was crushed. What happened to him? He doesn't die with his metal hands slipping down into like, you know, radiation water. He gets all the poop dumped on him. That's how he dies. In the book, James Bond is driving that like dragon mobile away. And then um, he he dumps a ton of uh, guano on Dr. No and Dr. No dies in the feces. And then also in the book. Honey is a different kind of character. She's a little bit more badass. She's like more of a nature girl who like raised herself and grew up in nature and like is friends with all the animals. And um, the rape storyline was in the book too, but in the book, her nose is broken um, and her, her rapist like broke her nose. And so the reason she's trying to earn money with shells is not just to live, but because she wants her nose to get fixed. She wants to get a nose job so it will be normal again. But in the end, Bond doesn't save her. She saves herself. Um, because the way Dr. No tries to kill her is um, they put her, I think, like they, I don't remember if they tie her up by the ocean, kind of like this, but she's not supposed to drown. They have all these crabs climb over her and they're supposed to be killer crabs. But because she understands animals and knows how to be, the crabs like, leave her alone and don't eat her and go away and she's fine. So she like saves herself. All of this is making me want a Dr. No limited series remake where we stretch Dr. No into like five or six episodes and we get all of this stuff. Maybe we get a backstory on Quarrel. We get a backstory on Honey Rider. Dr. No's backstory is a chapter. I don't remember a lot of it, but it's like this whole, he tells his life story and it is a life. It's like, they really go into it. You also bring up a great idea. They should totally make a miniseries out of it. I would watch it. But yeah, so much is kind of lost when they're trying to set up this Bond world that would have been cool to see. Although I guess they tried to do the crabs, but the crabs were frozen when they got to the studio or something. So they were like, screw it. Let's just make it a drowning water thing. It's fine. It's fine. But imagine what a what a, a movie shot with today's budget that realized a lot of the things that the movie had to cut out because they just couldn't afford to shoot it. I'm not usually like a guy who's like, hey, let's remake old movies. But lately I've been in that kick. Dr. No feels like a perfect candidate. Like maybe you and I and staff should call Cubby's daughter, Barbara, Babs, Cubby and Babs. And we should, uh, we should pitch this. Just for the Dr. No chapter alone, that would be cool to see. And he has claws in the book. And in this, they just gave him metal hands. Um, I did love just like that you don't see him too. They really keep the suspense up by not showing him on camera for so long. And then the first time you do kind of see him, it's those terrible pants that are like the Dr. Evil pants. Yeah, like what a contrast though. Like that first time when you hear his voice and it was like, dude, what a badass. Like I heard that and I'm like, that voice is sexy. What a villain. And then, yeah, compared to like that first appearance where he just kind of comes on his little soft white shoes to peek in on Sleeping Bond. Okay, so you know how you were saying that Marguerite uh, Loire's the the Miss Jamaica was offered the role of Miss Taro and then she turned it down. She's the photographer. No way, that's her. She's the lady photographer. Yeah. Then why? Why? Oh, she didn't want to be Miss Taro because she said it was like too. She didn't want to be like in her bathrobe, right? Or like in the yeah. Towel. She's like, I don't want to be kissing strange men and laying around in a towel. So she could have been Miss Taro and instead she's the photographer. Thank you for looking that up. I didn't know that. 
That's, that's so a cool. great fact. That's yeah. so cool. Bond has to put her in her place too, though. I hate that moment. Don't like any of that. He was kind of a dick there too. I think he has issues with women. In Bond's defense, it's pretty cool when you grab someone's camera and you open it up and rip out the film and you're like, you're like useless to you now. Here you go. It's exposed to the light. Good luck. No Google photos to save you. I guess he could be worse to her. He was just as bad to the guy with the cyanide cigarette, which was a great thing, the cyanide cigarette. So I do also want to bring up the tarantula scene. In the book, that was different too. It was not a tarantula. It was a centipede. And the tarantula stuff comes later. It's part of the obstacle course. So they were like, okay, cut the obstacle course. Bring in the tarantula earlier. Because yeah, it's just a poisonous centipede. But apparently the way they were going to shoot that or they did shoot it and it didn't work was they had the bed standing up against the wall and Sean Connery there and they put a glass plate over them and they had the tarantula crawl over the glass plate. And I guess it looked really bad. So they ended up having that stunt man, Bob Simmons, who's like the bond in the opening gun barrel shot. They had him do the tarantula stunt. And he said it was one of the most dangerous stunts of his career. He was legitimately terrified. Which is really funny because tarantulas aren't poisonous and they won't kill you. Why did they act like that then? Also, when the music, I love the part when he kills a tarantula and the music's like, dun, 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 dun. And he like slams it to the music. I love it. But I did not know that tarantulas were not poisonous. Wait, hold the phone. Really? Is this true? Yeah, I looked it up. Then why do we think they are? They're just big and hairy and so people, and they're scary because of that. Look at people are scared of spiders, right? Yeah, Sean Connery's terrified of spiders. So that's why he was like, ah, what? No. And that's why he, you know, he made them be the glass. And yeah, like uh, they just, they just look scary. And people used to judge things based on their looks. I thought they could kill you for sure. Nope. No, generally the smaller the, uh, the smaller the spider, the more venomous. More venomous. The smaller yeah. the spider, the more venomous they are. That's a Hairspray reference, which I imagine both of you got because you love Hairspray the Musical. Got it. The later Bond films, they pay homage to it with the scorpion. Like, is it Skyfall with the scorpion? Is that the one? I can't remember which Daniel Craig one. It's the scorpion's like on him or something and he gets it with the glass. And I went, ooh, that's Dr. No. It's Skyfall. Then I also did want to mention um, the Underneath the Mango Tree. I do love that it's a very prophetic song because it's like my honey and me make boop-a-loop soon. At the end of the movie, they do him and his honey, honey and me. They do make boop-a-loop. And I was like, wow, they really use this song to full effect. This silly song they turned into a plot point. Ah, damn. So we're just going to look at things through modern lens right now, which is like all of the things in the movie that didn't hold up, we're going to name them right now. So like we, we mentioned Quarrel and the depiction of Quarrel. I do want to say I did notice in the dancing scene there were like integrated couples, which I thought was cool. But then they also have like people behaving and speaking in ways that are stereotypical that are not like how they would really speak and stuff. I think in Jamaica, if I'm not mistaken, integration was ahead of its time there. That is actually very progressive, though, for them to show that. Now that I'm looking at it, I actually feel like... um We've talked about most of these because it was like the Asian casting where white people are playing Chinese people, the stereotypes in general of all races that are not like white. And then um, Money Penny, the sexism. We, we talked about a lot of that. And then I mentioned the one thing, the casual radiation, the fact that like they're constantly putting themselves in radiation and it's fine. They're fine. It just takes a shower. You're fine. That whole sequence, they spent a good like minute and a half on like the Geiger counter readings on them after they the, the radiation. It's ridiculous. And they didn't care. They were kind of like, yeah, radiation water, whatever. Yeah, we were blowing those reeds in the radiation water. We're fine. It's the 60s. Not a lot of people know about radiation. They don't. And the radiation water kills him, but it doesn't kill them. 
Because I guess it's higher radiation. Oh, how about like the wheel that like changes the danger level? It was so Austin Powers. Watching these films gives you such an appreciation for Austin Powers, I think. I think it's such a good satire of James Bond. They include all the stuff. I feel like they made a point to show us she wasn't really naked. Because when she steps off the conveyor belt, you can literally see the paper um, pasty bikini stuff that they've put on her. And I almost feel like it was them being like, see, she's not really naked. Don't be afraid. She's not naked. No naked people were involved. I thought it was pretty progressive that they were were so humane to their captors on Crabtree. They were just like, here's some clothes. I, we just got your size yesterday. Here's your breakfast. It was very humane treatment. The coffee was drugged, but they were very kind to them, it's true. The coffee was drugged, but this is not in keeping with James Bond's character because when he's at his hotel, he goes to pour himself a drink with the open vodka and then thinks twice and then gets the sealed uh, bottle of vodka. So like, what gives? I could only imagine that it's because of the duress of the situation or radiation poisoning. Or just the niceness. Maybe he was like, eh, they're really nice. We're probably fine. They're super nice, yeah. Well, because at that point, they're still trying to get, uh, you know, Dr. No's trying to recruit him to Spectre. His treatment changes completely after he turns down the Spectre invite. At, At that point, he's just like, oh, come be part of our evil club. Another excellent point. I totally forgot about that. Steph makes a great point. So Bond and Honey get like this awesome treatment after Coral is immediately singed to death. Can we discuss the death of Coral? He's afraid of this dragon and Bond's like, dragons aren't real. And we're like, yes, they are. Just wait. And Honey believes in the dragons. But then we see the thing that kind of does look like a dragon and it literally burns him to death in front of them horrifically. And then, oh, they're so nice. Like, we move on from that very quickly. It's like a, a quick, I guess we have to, to survive in our brains as humans. But I, I always get really, really sad when Coral dies. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this because I, when that scene happened, I thought to myself, have Bond and Honey shown the proper respect for Coral as his corpse lies crisping next to them and you hear the crackling like it is like he's burning and he's not too far away from him i kind of feel like bond does bond is kind of like broken up about it but as soon as he goes to the you know to crab key he's like oh all right you know i've got my pajamas and all that stuff it's the bath scene it cleanses us all it's a palate cleanser for everyone like forget quarrel we're all being cleaned now in bond's defense there's a lot going on. There's I mean, a lot it, going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on, but Coral does get done wrong. And I think it's also really cool that when they set up the whole dragon thing, it's really set up like, oh, this idiot, this like villager, right? But when you see that thing, it's like, oh, I can totally, I kind of think it's a dragon. It looks like it's got teeth. It blows fire out of its mouth. They had the two things that looked like eyes. I get how far away that that looks like a dragon. I'm sold. Plus, Like, Chinese dragons, that's, like, literally a thing. Like, that's part of the heritage. Like, Lunar New Year, we've got that giant dragon. What is that called? What's that called? It's, like, the head of the dragon that they... It's, like, a puppet. Yeah, it's kind of like a puppet. So, like, that is part of, you know, Chinese heritage. So, I don't know. I get why that would be a thing. Dr. No was the one who seeds the lie that there are dragons down there. Okay, who is your favorite Bond? And let's rank the Bonds. I think Sean Connery might be my favorite just because he was first, but Daniel Craig is like such a close second because he's so good at being Bond. So those are probably my top two. I agree with you. I think I think Connery, just because he sets the tone of, of James Bond, has to for me, has to be tops. But I think Casino Royale was so good. So good. To instantly like throw Daniel Craig into the mix in that first one. And I think um, 
God, I forgot who directed Casino Royale, but the director deserves a lot of credit too because it kind of sets up this new sort of feel, look and feel for, for James Bond. So I, I agree with you. Stephanie, what's your ranking? Easily just Daniel Craig. He's so good in the role and, and you know, they made these movies a lot later and there's just a lot less that's problematic about it. He's, he's, he's excellent. He's perfect. And he does have that like, he doesn't look like Hoagie Carmichael. I'm not saying that he does, but he is more of like an everyman. It's less about him being like, I'm rich, smooth, suave. He's like more rugged and more like, I could be one of you. Like, I'm just someone that I got really buff and everything, but I could be like a regular person also. Exactly. I'm not saying he's not handsome, but you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Compared to um, Pierce Brosnan, we were like, I don't believe it when you punch someone and they fall. He looks like he went to a boarding school. He looks like a silver spoon. He wasn't just fed with them. He looks like one. I think that it's problematic to have a James Bond who is also the villain in Mrs. Doubtfire. Great point. Wow, that's a great point. I'm going to put quotes around is that he the for villain because, mm, yeah, like. All he's doing is dating a mom, you know, a yeah. mom with kids. What's so bad about that? If he's not the villain of Mrs. Doubtfire, then the villain of Mrs. Doubtfire is Robin Williams. And I'm sorry, like, it's one I mean, of the what other. he's doing is a little creepy. Let's be honest. Super crazy. Yeah. I'm going to lie to my wife and wear drag and watch my children without permission. But if you think about it, you either have to pick one lane or the other. But Robin Williams tries to kill him. He puts pepper in his soup knowing that that Pierce Brosnan is allergic to it. Shoot, I forgot. It was a run by fruiting. He tries to give him a concussion with fruit. I love Mrs. Doubtfire and I love Robin Williams. So I'm really just joking people at home. We're just joking. You're either team Euphigenia or you're team James Bond. And I'm team Euphigenia. I think I'm team Euphigenia. I can't not be. I refuse to say there's teams. I see both sides of it. I'm a Libra, goddammit. This might be unpopular. The villain Sally Field, she technically doesn't do anything wrong. I don't think it's her. I think it's the petting zoo that Robin Williams lets in in the beginning. I think they're the real <laughs> villain of the piece. They were the reason the marriage really broke down. I think the villain is society for not getting an uber talent like Daniel Brewster. I forget what his name is. This is not fire, but like he's an uber talent and he can't get a job. You mean to tell me this guy? who could trick his family into thinking that he's an old housekeeper? Can't get a job as an actor? I know, it's ridiculous. Also, Harvey Firestein, shout out to him in that film. Wow, what a great sequence when they turn him into Mrs. Doubtfire. The whole matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Okay, so we're kind of torn about Sean Connery and Daniel Craig, they're both at the top. They're like the cream of the crop, the best of the bonds. I feel like I really enjoyed George Lazenby because I really enjoy Under Majesty's Secret Service. So for me, he's a third. And then if I'm going to go, I don't I don't love Roger Moore. He's too pompous for me, but I only saw him in one Bond film. So I'm only basing it on one Bond experience. He's my worst Bond. I know that's controversial. I'm putting him in the bottom. I don't think that's controversial. I haven't seen Timothy Dalton, so I can't rank him. And Pierce Brosnan, again, I think he probably was a pretty decent Bond, but I did not love the Bond movies during his era. I'm sorry. I know that's not a popular opinion. So we did four and Daniel Craig with No Time to Die was, will be five. But Roger Moore did like eight. Yeah, he did a lot. One cool thing about Roger Moore is that he chose to stop playing Bond because he said, I'm too old and these Bond girls are too young. He said that like these girls could be my granddaughter. And so he stopped. He chose to stop. I like that. Now I feel bad that I was like, he wasn't <laughs> my favorite. That's okay. What are your top five Bond movies? The quintessential one is Goldfinger, but that's not my favorite one, but that's like the quintessential Bond. 
is Goldfinger. It's got all the Bond stuff. I like Goldfinger a lot. Casino Royale, though. The Daniel Craig Casino Royale, not the fake one. I enjoyed Dr. No quite a bit. I forgot how much I enjoyed it. I don't know if I'd put it number three, but I'd definitely put it in the top five just because of how unique it is. I mean, Skyfall is fantastic. Skyfall's really, really fantastic. And then I think I have to round it out with Goldeneye. Even though upon, like, repeat viewing Goldeneye feels very dated, I remember seeing it in the movie theater and being like, that is cool. You know, I hadn't been excited to see a James Bond movie in a long time. So that was one of them. But I just realized I put a Pierce Brosnan film in the top five after I just argued that he was, you know, the villain of This Is Doubtfire. I have two Connerys and two Craigs. I could make a case for Moonraker because it's James Bond in a space shuttle. I'm putting Honor Majesty's Secret Service in there because it's like Bond falls in love and gets married to a badass lady. There's really cool skiing scenes. And then that's kind of like the idea of the fembots because they're not the fembots, but it's like all the women of the world hypnotized, waking up to kill. Like, I don't know. I think it's really fun. The 1969 aspect of it, how 60s it looks. For me, that would be my in my top five, I think. I haven't watched enough of these. Skyfall, probably my favorite just because of the backstory and Spectre, just because I am obsessed with Christoph Waltz. We're heading into what's your favorite James Bond song? I don't know them. I know Skyfall and I know Live and Let Die. Probably Live and Let Die is the best. Live and Let Die is objectively a great song. It almost is the only Bond theme that transcends its Bondness, in in my opinion. I think we talked about this a little bit. We talked about this separately, not we on the did. pod. I think it has to be Live and Let Die just because it's a phenomenal song. I'm a big Duran Duran fan, so A Beautiful Kills. I always have a soft spot for that one. We dug up some really weird Bond themes the other day. Like, which one was the garbage Bond theme? The world is not enough. It was so good. You know, I have a lot of love for Die Another Day by Madonna. When I was studying abroad in Spain, one night when I was out, I met this guy who I ended up hanging out with. And he, at the end of the night, invites me to his chalet out in the Spanish Sierra Nevada. And I'm studying abroad, so of course I go. And we end up at this little cafe to eat and, and get to know each other further. And they have playing on their radio, nothing but remixes of Madonna's Die Another Day over and over and over. Just different different variations on that theme. I still love it. Did you guys know Cheryl Crow did a theme? I only did because I think we talked about it that one day. I forgot about this. Nobody does it better. Carly Simon, I was like, I bet that's good. And then um, Goldfinger, obviously, I've heard that one. They had her, Shirley Bassey, record that song like overnight. They had to get it into the people that were listening to it. And so she was really pissed off when she was singing it. And you can really feel those vibes. And it's great. And then I wrote down, uh, You Only Live Twice, Nancy Sinatra. I would like to hear that song. Is it good? I don't know. Can't remember. Here's what I do remember about Die Another Day. The reason Stephanie probably heard all of those uh, remixes is because on the U.S. maxi single of Die Another Day. There are six remixes on that maxi single. If you bought the U.K. single, I think you got a different mix. I'm just going to throw it out there, guys. For the U.S. maxi single, you got the radio edit, and you got the Dirty Vegas main mix, the Retro Electro mix, the Thunderpuss club mix, the Deep Sky remix, and Brother Brown's Bondage club mix. The shortest remix length is seven minutes and 27 seconds. That's the shortest remix length. So you you probably heard a whole hour of Diana of the Day remixes and it was the US maxi single. 
or both sides, CD1 or CD2 of the UK singles. That's incredible. It must have been the UK mix because I was in Europe at the time. Who would just play that? Who would be like, guess what? This is the background for all of our fine diners this evening. Well, what year is it, Stephanie? 2005. 2005, that dude had like a six CD disc changer. And two of those were the UK CD single one and CD single two of Die Another Day. I'm just going to mention before I start with my favorites, the honorable mentions of The Living Daylights by AHA. Andre mentioned A View to Kill by Duran Duran, which is an excellent song. My top five in no particular order. World is Not Enough by Garbage. Another Way to Die by Jack White with Alicia Keys. Oh, I like that one. Yes, that's a good one. You're correct. Uh, I get stuck in my head all the time. Skyfall is just incredible. I think those are my favorite. I wrote down there's a Louis Armstrong one, and I feel like that's very interesting. Like, what was that like? That seems like a, a mismatch, and I... I... I would like it, I'm sure. It's interesting because that's part of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which has another. Yeah, it has its own theme. I don't even remember. What's the Bond song that you had an immediate reaction to when you saw it in the context of the opening credits? Skyfall. I feel like Skyfall hit. I feel like um, Goldfinger, I feel like I remember being like, I remember thinking it was kind of dumb, but also enjoying it. Yeah. You know, Goldfinger. Like, it just really pulls you in. It does. And she was pissed. She was pissed. Oh, yeah. She was like, it's late at night. I don't want to record this. Goldfinger. Real mad. Side note, Jack White, when he made Another Way to Die, that wasn't the first Bond theme that he wrote. Seven Nation Army was a song that he wrote wanting it to be a Bond theme. It's just such a good song. That's so funny that they'd be like, no to that huge hit. <laughs> it's too good. Write a slower jam. Just to tie it back into everything that's happening right now, how do we feel about that Billie Eilish James Bond single? I feel like I heard it and I feel like I thought it was good, but I don't remember right now. I think I'm just going to be happy to see a Bond film, if I'm being honest. I think that's how I feel. Same. And how we might have a Black female Bond, and how cool is that going to be if that really happens? Oh, really? I haven't heard what's the latest on that. It's a secret word on the street, which could be totally wrong, and I'm probably going to look like a fool when this is released. But there's like an agent that's working with Bond on this one, and she might end up being like the new James Bond. All right. I don't know, though. I I don't know for sure. It would be really cool. Or Idris Elba, as we all know. Everybody wants that, so they're not going to give it to well, us. Well, everybody wanted Pierce Brosnan, and they finally capitulated. You kind of brought this up, but we didn't really talk about it. Honey Ryder, and you were talking about her, um, you know, her, like, rape story. But, like, man, I thought she was such a badass when I heard about how she handled it. Like, oh, my God, I thought that was just the coolest. You know, I was expecting there to be a lot more problematic about this film than there was. I would agree with that. I think it's, like, more charming or cozy or quaint. There's something about it where it's, like, you can't help but like it. Um, and you're right. It could be w- it could be way worse for the time it came out in. And her story is pretty badass. It's unfortunate that she was sexually assaulted and that that's a common trope that Ian Fleming would use, apparently, in these novels. But the fact that she got revenge, that she, she fucking murders her rapist with a Black Widow spider. Uh, so cool. I like that she is strong and independent and takes care of herself. I felt like she was a pretty complete character. Like, she's got her hustle. Oh, God, that lie where she's like, this show could get me $50 in Miami. $50! It's no joke. As a Miami native, I'll tell you, there are a lot of expensive seashells at the gift shops. So, the Honey Rider, kudos. And she educates herself with the encyclopedia. No, she's cool. I liked her. I'm sorry we didn't talk about her enough. I don't understand where her pants went at the end. I don't know if you guys were bothered by this, but she was wearing pants and then she wasn't wearing pants anymore. And I was like, great. Okay. 
buy pants. I guess they take them off of you and they chain you to the death tide. Maybe they're like, the silk is too nice. It must not go when we drown you. They did give her those clothes, right? So I guess thinking about the economy of like reusables for the next prisoner in that size, they could probably take them off and get extended use out of that. The staff thought of it. I'm so glad you brought up Honey because we were not finished with her. She, she was a pretty badass character. The next movie is her getting her own degree and becoming some sort of like researcher of marine biology. I'd like to bring up something before we go. The believable and realistic depiction of sleep as a necessity, even during a spy mission. When they get to Crab Key, they get there, and then they're like, all right, let's go over there, and I'm going to take a nap. And then they, they nap. They sleep there, and then after they meet Honey Rider, and they have their, I think their shootout, they sleep again. But then in the beginning, James Bond stayed up all night and was fine. Because I remember thinking, like, I would not be okay to do a spy mission if I stayed up all Maybe night. Maybe that's why he needed to sleep. He was like, I pulled an old night out. This is the quote about him being up late. It's 3 a.m. When do you sleep, Bond? And he goes, never on the firm's time, sir. And then uh, they do so much great, like, explaining of things. Or it's like, if you carry a double O number, it means you're licensed to kill, not get killed. They, like, explain things very succinctly in very quotable bites. Oh, I wrote down the quote about the drink. One medium dry vodka martini, just like you said, sir, not stirred. It came after the, the cyanide cigarette. And then I wondered, the woman says, um, I changed into something more comfortable. And I was like, is this the first time someone on camera has said this? Because that's like the most, I slipped into something more comfortable. Like that's such a, a joke. It's, it's like said so much. Is this the first time? I would love to know that. I had to look this one up, but I think my favorite was when Bond tells Dr. No, Minnows pretending to be whales, just like you on this island. But he doesn't say it like that. That was older Sean Connery saying it as... As young Sean Connery. Yeah, but I like the line. You won't get away with it this time, Dr. No. He says that. And I'm like, is that the first time somebody said something like that on film? I don't know. It's great. I'd imagine somebody had to have said that in like some sort of like pulpy detective it's very like you won't get away with it this time see you know but slipping into something more comfortable i don't know no i feel like that's been around too because i can see the same again like the old starlet slipped into something more comfortable double feature it's the double feature portion of the program if you liked this and you want to watch something else i think we've given you a lot of examples i think that you should really go for the good bonds from russia with love goldfinger thunderball watch the sean connery's if you like this if you want more good bonds in general, check out the Daniel Craig portion, <laughs> Casino Royale, Skyfall, all that on Her Majesty's Secret Service. We got a GoldenEye shout out. I would throw in, uh, to be completists, uh, Never Say Never Again, because you could watch uh, his first appearance as Bond in Dr. No, and then his last appearance. So it's like you're watching with like the first people that produced it and like the the other team. What did they do? Like, how is it different? Ooh, I, I do like that. I haven't seen Never Say Never again in a very, very long time, but I do remember it not sucking. I remember it being pretty good. They said all of the Sean Connery James Bonds were hits. I don't think he made one that wasn't a hit, but I will say the one he did that Roald Dahl wrote, I forget what it's called. It's like the sixth one, maybe. It's the one after Thunderbolt, so it's the fifth one. It doesn't make sense, and it has the line in it, in Japan, men come first and women come second. Just that alone should make you go, no... And I would say, honestly, Austin Powers, I think would be a great double feature because it makes fun of it so perfectly from like a fan's perspective. 
So I think that would be a fun double feature to watch for sure. And it calls out a lot of the bullshit too, while still having its own bullshit because it was made in the 90s. That's another movie that doesn't age very well. But it's still a good companion piece, I bet. It is. Goldfinger and Austin Powers, I think, would be a great companion piece. I agree. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You were such good guests. And we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Stephanie Anderson and Andre Fonseca. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm and become a contributing member. <laughs> that would be great. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.